Well, again, I'm going to say welcome Elevation Church because when I welcomed Elevation Church like 10 minutes ago, half of Elevation Church wasn't here yet. So welcome Elevation Church. How are y'all doing? Great. All right. So the other half isn't awake yet. The first half is great. The other half needs to wake up. It's not, it's not on you. We, I, y'all work with me on this. All right. So we're back here this morning, continuing in a series, a teaching series that we began about a month ago, a series from the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's the record of what happened, how it happened, why it happened, who did it, all about the early church, the first century church, the church that began within like a month and a week of Jesus' ascension back into heaven. It was within like two months of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that this church began to really take form and take root and indeed take off. And I said when we started the series, it reminds me a lot of Elevation Church because the early church had a lot of things that we have going for it and going against it. It was small, relatively unheard of. We're small, relatively unheard of. Like we don't have a permanent building and a permanent sign and, you know, we don't do big marketing campaigns and, you know, we wear our t-shirts and we go serve and, and we, you know, use Facebook and we invite people and Elevation Church has grown in two and a half years from 12 people to about a hundred now, a little less. Y'all looking around going, there's not a hundred. There's a lot of people in the kids' rooms and all that right now. Yeah, we have about 25 elementary age students in that room right up there right now. And those 25 students in that elementary age room right now are about to go through a salvation message. They're going to hear about what Jim just sung about, how much God loves us. And they're going to have an opportunity to respond to his love this morning. I'm excited about that. I can't wait to hear what happens in that room upstairs. So anyway, we have a lot of things in common with the early church. We're small, relatively unheard of, but we are energized, we are excited, and we have a, a, an opportunity outside of these walls because this is not Elevation Church, this is Studio B. We rent this room to, to gather and worship in for like an hour and a half every week. But the real church, us, we do what we do out there a whole lot more than what we do in here. God does in us and through us out there in our community a lot more than what He does in us and through us here in this room in these four walls. See, the early church had a community that was filled with unbelievers, people who did not know the truth about Jesus. Two out of three people in our community do not know the truth about Jesus, or at least have not responded yet to that truth. We have a great mission and a great opportunity, just like the early church had a great mission and a great opportunity. We talked last week about how the believers in the early church experienced and enjoyed this amazing fellowship together. Remember that? It's one of my favorite passages I told you. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It is such a clearly prescriptive and descriptive passage. It describes what the early believers did, but it's also prescriptive and it tells us what we as the church, need to be doing today. And we talked about how they enjoyed this fellowship together. And some of you may have left here last week with the impression that the church always operates 
and this amazing fellowship and everybody loves everybody and it's always good and it's a rose garden and puppy dogs and butterflies and hugs and kisses. And if you've been in the church very long, whether it's Elevation Church or any other church, you have found out that that fellowship is not perfect. It does not exist 100% of the time in this wonderful, beautiful unity. In fact, it is rarely true that the church, any local body or the church global, is in full harmony and unity at any given. In fact, it probably has never happened. See, the church is wrought with, with problems, with challenges, with difficulties. It's just part of it. The church doesn't exist in that perfect fellowship. That perfect fellowship exists within the church, but that is not our state of being all the time. We face a lot of challenges. We face a lot of troubles. We face a lot of, a lot of problems in the church. And you know why? Because again, the church isn't these four walls. You're the church. I'm the church. We're the church. We're people. And people are fallen. And people are sinful. Don't raise your hand, but in your mind, acknowledge, have I ever sinned? Yes, you have. Okay, so we got that on the, on, we all know. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And because we're sinful, the church has challenges. The church has problems, problems that we have to deal with, problems that we have to address, things we have to be proactive about and things we have to be reactive about. We're sinful. We bring problems into the church when we join it. A pastor, a really wise pastor once said, if you're looking for the perfect church and you find it, don't join. Because when you do, you're going to mess it up. That was funny. Y'all can laugh. We need the cue cards again. All right. Don't join the perfect church if you find it because you're going to bring all your problems into it and you're going to mess it up. The church isn't perfect. Not only are we fallen, fallible, sinful people, but I don't know, if you looked around, you might notice we're different. Like, I've got red hair. There's only one other redhead in here right now. Maybe two. Depends on how, what shades of blonde you consider red, right? I mean, there's a, just a couple of redheads in here. Uh, we, we all grew up in different families, right? Everybody has a different family. We grew up in a different culture. Wherever your family came from, whatever community you lived in, you had a different culture than my family did. We like different things. We like different clothes. We like different food. We drive different cars. We live in different houses. We live in different, in, in different cities, not just neighborhoods, but cities here. Like I live in Flower Mound. Some of y'all live in Highland Village. There's some Double Oak, some Louisville. Uh, there's some Lake Dallas folks. I mean, we, we got people coming from everywhere. You had different educations, different political leanings. Maybe you grew up in church, but you grew up in a different denomination. Unless you grew up in like a really, truly non-denominational church, you grew up in a different denomination than what you sit in now because we don't, we, don't, we don't belong to any denominational authority. We're a straightforward, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. But we got differences. Some of us have different skin pigmentation. I'm a white, 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 white guy until I get out in the sun, and then I'm a red, white, 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 white guy. Some of y'all are different shades of tan all the way up and throughout the spectrum. We're different. Very, very different. Different. Plus sinful. Sounds like an equation for some trouble, for some challenges, for some problems. You know what? 
in a weird kind of way, I thank God for the problems, for the challenges of the church. Because it's in those problems, it's in those challenges that we have opportunities to lead and to guide, opportunities to submit ourselves to God, to learn to serve each other, to love one another, to get past the differences, see each other with God's eyes. Church has problems. Church has challenges. We don't always agree. In fact, we often operate at different levels of disagreement and disharmony. And if we're not, not careful, we allow our, our differences and we allow our sinfulness to create division in the church. Division is always that close. It's just right there on the cusp of happening at any given moment in any given church. Why? Because the enemy likes to divide. Oh man, come on now. The enemy loves to divide. And if he can divide the church... If he can divide one believer from another, if he can divide somebody from God by making the church a mess and keeping them from seeing past the church to, the, to, to God, oh, he wins. That's a battle he's won. The enemy loves to divide. And so the church has to always be on point and on guard against division. We've got to recognize the problems and the challenges. We've got to deal with the differences and the disharmony before they become division. Such was the case in the first century church in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have your Bible today, don't sweat it. We're going to put the Scripture verses up on the screen back here. It's already up there. But if you've got your Bible, even if it's the one in your smartphone, there's something about reading it right there in your face. Something right, you know, opening those onion skin pages or typing in that passage into the search box and letting your phone go find it for you. There's just something about reading it for yourself, but if not, then right up here on the screen. Let's, let's check out what was happening in the first century church in this sixth chapter of Acts, verses 1-7. to seven. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, that's a good thing in the church, when the number of disciples is increasing. That's something else we have in common with the early church, Elevation Church. We're growing. The disciples are increasing here. When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, some of your Bibles may say the Grecian Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all of the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Will the proposal please the whole group? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and who laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's a lot going on in those seven little verses. 
That's a, that's a packed passage right there. What I want to talk about today, looking at this passage, what I want to unpack out of it is the differences that these early believers had, the differences between these two groups that were identified, the problem that they were dealing with, the solution that they executed, and then how does that apply to Elevation Church right here today in the year 2013? How does it apply to you right now? That's the path we're on. Y'all ready to go? Giddy up. Let's do it. So let's talk about the difference. What was the difference that these people were dealing with? The Bible identifies two groups of people. The Hellenistic Jews or the Grecian Jews are one, and the Judaic Jews are the other. Now the Grecian Jews, I'm just going to go with the Grecian word because I can say that quicker than I can say Hellenistic. And besides that, I might slip and say the wrong word. And y'all catch up with that later. So um, the Grecian Jews, these Greek Jews, right? These were Jewish men and women, Jewish families, who had grown up in Greek culture. Okay, They lived in Greek cities. They operated in Greek culture. They would have possibly spoken Aramaic or Hebrew, but many of them likely did not, because they would have been educated in the Greek educational system. Now, their families may have taught them those, those languages, those original biblical Judaic languages, Aramaic and Hebrew. But they probably didn't know a lot about that. They would have practiced the Jewish traditions. They would have practiced their Judaic faith. But they would have also, so they would have known the scriptures, okay? Old Testament. But they would have also been well-versed and probably pretty solidly founded and had a lot of faith and trust in all of the Greek educational system. And Greek philosophy was huge. Many of you have studied Greek philosophy as you came through high school and especially in college. Especially if you were uh, doing something in the arts, if you were you know, in philosophy, for instance, or, or political science even, or uh, some kind of a language. You, you've, you've dealt with Greek philosophy. And man, so these, these guys had these two different cultures kind of rock in their worlds, these, these Hellenistic or Grecian Jews. The Hebraic Jews would have been what we typically think of, kind of the traditional Jewish people. They would have grown up in the Jewish culture. They would have been educated in the Jewish educational system, which the goal was to spit out rabbis at the end. They would have been trained in the scriptures. They would have been trained in all of the traditions and the practices and the, and the religion, literally, of Judaism. And now we have this crazy thing happens where this Jesus guy shows up and he preaches this new message, this gospel of salvation. And you have people from both of these Jewish cultures, the Grecian Jews and the Judaic Jews, believe in Jesus. And so these two cultures who probably up to that point had operated kind of parallel but separate, now have something in common that brings them together. Now, if you know anything about taking two unlike substances and putting them together, sometimes there can be an adverse reaction. Any of you chemistry people, sociology people, you know you take two different people groups, put them together, sometimes poof, you get not good magic, right? Bad stuff happens. 
Bad stuff begins to happen. They're operating as the Christian church, but the, the problem comes up when the Greek Jews complain against the Hebraic Jews who apparently have maybe more people or more power in the early church that the widows are being overlooked or mistreated in the distribution of food. Now that may sound pretty petty in 2013. It may sound like it's really not a big deal. Are you kidding me? Like, Meals on Wheels delivered turkey and dressing to this family and delivered um, meatloaf to this family and y'all are going to complain about it? I mean, come on. Eh, maybe I'm making too light of it. Or maybe we just don't understand it culturally. Because if you think about the biblical culture, the, the early church times back in the first century, women really were not fully-fledged first-class citizens. They did not have access to most of the jobs that were available at that time. Women could not work in most of those jobs. So their, their opportunities, if they were widowed, to provide for their family were fairly limited to begin with. Okay, it, was a, it was really a culture built around men. Men did most of the work. Men occupied most of the jobs. Women had places that they could work, but mostly they were homemakers. And so if they were widowed, their opportunities were fairly limited. They were not educated the same way that the men were. There was no such thing as a safety net like Social Security. And the government did not write checks back in the day to bail these people out. Back then, they wrote checks to the government to keep the government operating and it didn't matter what class of citizen you were, that's how it worked. So who took on the responsibility of caring for widows and orphans? The church. It was true before there were Christians. And as the Christian church formed, it stayed the tradition in the Christian church. They took care of the widows and the orphans. The church would share things in community and, and distribute food and take care of the needs of these widows and these orphans. And so when the Hebraic Jews were operating that system of taking care of the widows and the orphans, they kind of already looked down on the Greek Jews because they didn't consider them at the same level. You know, religiously, they're not like as good as we are because they believe in some of these other things like they put Greek... Uh, philosophy on the same level or similar level to the scriptures. And man, we just can't deal with that. And, and so they kind of treated them like second-class citizens and they bypassed or belittled or maybe just didn't handle as friendly the widows and orphans of those Jewish people, of those church members. And so we see the sinfulness of man and we see the differences between people starting to play out in a way that could have very easily divided the early church. Two groups. One seemingly small, but really very potentially big problem. If this problem persists, it could destabilize that small, fragile, early church. It could divide it and destroy it. The apostles had to act. They had to do something about this. When this was brought to their attention, they said, we can't let this go on. Let's do something. And so they came up with a plan. 
The first thing that we find that the apostles said is, we cannot do this ourselves. We, the twelve, cannot neglect our duties, neglect our call as the preachers and teachers of the Word of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot stop doing that to run over here and start doing this. That doesn't mean this, waiting on tables, feeding widows and orphans, is unimportant. It's not unimportant. It's critical. We're specifically called, specially gifted, uniquely talented and experienced to do this work. We can't neglect it to do this work. Let's find some in the church, some who are faithful, who are wise, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's find some who are gifted to do this. And they say, hey, we hear what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from, your complaints. We get it. Here's what we think we should do. You go find some people that you believe in, that you are willing to entrust with this responsibility. Present them to us. We'll see if we agree. And if we do, we will hand that responsibility over to them so that we can continue in the work that we've been called to do and so that they can begin the work that they are called to do. And that proposal, the Bible says, pleased everybody. That's hard to please everybody, isn't it? But this one worked. Pleased the whole group. So they delegated. They delegated a new responsibility, well, an old responsibility. They made a new role, a new position, if you will, to be filled. And they delegated the responsibility of fulfilling that mission to seven men whom they found to be faithful, filled with the Spirit, and wise. And that delegation, when they did that, they were following an age-old biblical leadership principle. Something that they would have known about from their own education. Something that goes way back, 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 way back to the very beginning of the Jewish culture, back in Moses' time. Check out what's going on when we get to uh, Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 to 21. Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 to 21. Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And every day, Moses' time is being eaten up, literally devoured by just sitting there, listening to the differences between the people that are following him. He's placed himself in the position of a judge, and he has to listen every day to all of these things coming before him, and he hands down judgment. Everything from little bitty things, like they're not feeding my widows like they're feeding their widows, to great big things like maybe murder or theft. I don't know. He's hearing it all. And Moses' father-in-law comes for a visit. His name's Jethro. And y'all thought the Beverly Hillbillies had the patent on that name. That goes way back. Jethro rolls in. He sees Moses. And here's what he says. What you are doing is not good. I love fathers-in-law. I got one. In fact, I've got two. Trina's parents are divorced, and so I've got a stepfather-in-law and a father-in-law, and they're both great father-in-laws. And they would probably both do this to me and smile while they were doing it. What you are doing is not good. 
This is not wise, young man. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Jethro is telling him something in love here. He's about to drop some wisdom on him. He says, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But, ding, 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 ding. Key word, key phrase. But, you always pay attention in the Bible when there's a but. Select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. There's some things about this passage that ring true with what the apostles in the first century church just did. Find some faithful men, trustworthy men, men who fear God, and appoint them over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, over tens. Delegate authority. You cannot do it all yourself. Delegate authority. Delegate responsibility. The church isn't about you. The church is not about me. I cannot do it all. The pastor, the pastor's wife, the pastor's kids, we cannot do it all. Unfortunately, in Elevation Church, we don't find ourselves having to do it all because delegation is happening, has happened. And it continues to happen, and I love it. So the solution wasn't something they came up with on their own. Solution was something they were familiar with over the course of time. Throughout the Bible, delegation has been a tool for growing the kingdom. It's been a tool for leading the people. It's a great biblical principle that we must execute today. One of the pastors that I love to, to follow, I read his stuff, and when his books come out, I buy them, and I watch his videos and, and all this stuff. And if he's speaking in town, I try to make it to it. His name's Andy Stanley. He's a few years older, than about 10, 12 years older than me. Um, Andy comes out of a church in Georgia. His dad, uh, Charles Stanley, is like really, really, really well-known, widely known, been around forever in a year. And Andy says this um, whole principle in just a few words that I love. Andy says, you should only do what only you can do. We'll say it again. Only do what only you can do. Now, some people might think that sounds like a recipe for laziness. You mean I should only do a real narrow window of things? Yes. Only do what only you can do. But delegate to others the things that you cannot do. Or do not do well. Find those who do those things well. Who are gifted in those areas. And delegate those things to them. Only do what only you can do is not a recipe for laziness. In fact, what it is, it's a recipe for maximizing the strengths that God himself placed inside of you. Do you know that God made you a specific intent and specific purpose? And he hardwired you to accomplish the mission He has for you. See, you're no accident. And you're not a mistake. God never made any junk. He never made any mistakes. No accidental people. Every one of us, handcrafted by a master craftsman. 
with specific intent, designed by that master, executed by that master, life breathed into you by that master to do the job you were intended to do. You have been equipped fully for that job. Any of y'all ever struggle at doing something? Maybe something you didn't like to do? I'm not good at math. I'm just going to be straight up. I'm not really good at math. All of my, I've made straight A's throughout school, except in math. It used to frustrate me. I spent hours of study trying to get good at math. It didn't work out too good. Then I just stopped studying at all. That worked out worse. I, I didn't know at the time I was not wired to be a, a mathematician, an engineer, a scientist. Uh, it's not what God designed me to do. Y'all know I don't have to do much math to do what I do? Praise God. <laughs> I don't have to do much math to do this. I was always phenomenal. Great. Went to competitions for writing and speaking. I acted from on a stage from the time I was like two years old, preschool. Who knew? All that was preparing me for this. I didn't. I promise you. I spent hours trying to get better at math. Sweated. I mean, my parents just, I mean, I was grounded forever. Six weeks at a time, man. Report card to report card. Couldn't get better than a C. Couldn't get out of the house. Who knew? I was pouring all of that effort into something I was never intended to do. What I wished I would have been able to do back then was delegate to one of my friends who was brilliant at math. I would have done her English homework like that if she had just done my math. That's not how school works. But when you grow up and you get to make your own decisions, invest yourself into the things that you can do, that God has wired you to do. Doesn't mean you ignore the rest, you delegate those things to others who are faithful and filled with the Spirit and capable. And delegation is not relegation. You don't just give it away and never check in. When you delegate, you've got to follow up. You've got to investigate what that person is doing. You can't just relegate. Here, that's yours. Bye. Because they won't do it right. Or they won't do it at all. A pastor that I had a lot of respect for and sat under for years said, you got to inspect what you expect. you got to inspect what you expect. Oh man, that's good. So when you delegate, don't relegate, inspect what you expect and teach and train and lead that person. Develop the skills in them that you see God has placed in them when you delegate something important to them. Delegation is a time-tested biblical leadership principle. It goes all the way back to Moses, and it's brilliant. And the apostles executed it perfectly in the early church. But delegation is only half of the solution. Delegation in the church is important but it's only half of the solution to the church's problem. The other half is duplication. we got to have delegation, but we must also have duplication. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2, 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a disciple of Paul. The Apostle Paul has taken Timothy under his wing. He is delegating leadership to Timothy. 
One thing at a time. Little bit here, little bit there. As Timothy proves faithful in this, Paul gives him that. And he's walking Timothy along, teaching him to be a pastor, a minister, teaching him how to preach, sharing with him the truth of the gospel and how that gospel is executed in life and and how to apply it. And he's walking along and he writes him this letter. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, The things that you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. What you have seen me do, what you have heard me do, the lessons I have taught to the masses, the lessons he's taught to Timothy himself, take those and trust those to others who can also do What I, Paul, have done, what I have taught you, Timothy, to do. Share that. Duplicate yourself in ministry. See, the goal of delegation is duplication. It's to duplicate yourself in ministry. Sometimes you delegate away the things that you aren't good at. Sometimes you delegate away the things that you are good at. The things that you are designed to do. Because honestly... I will not always be able to preach every single message 52 weekends a year at Elevation Church. For two and a half years, I've been here every weekend but one. I've spoken every weekend but four. I cannot continue to do that. It's not good for my health. It's not good for my marriage. It's not good for my kids. It's not good for my relationship with God. Guess what? It ain't good for y'all. Y'all need to hear some diversity. You need to hear from somebody else sometimes. So I've got to delegate and I've got to duplicate. And I promise you, my eyes are open and my heart is attuned to the Spirit of God. And I am looking in Elevation Church for faithful men and women who can do the things I'm not good at and who can do the things that I am good at and am called to do so that I can delegate and duplicate myself in ministry. And over the next month, y'all are going to find out that the duplication process has been going on for a long time. Long time. I didn't even realize some of the duplication that God has been doing in me and through me. The delegation process is alive and well today. We've got a lot of folks in and around Elevation Church that have been delegated to and are executing faithfully the things that have been, the responsibilities that have been given to them. Duplication, 2 Timothy 2.2. Take what I've given you, give it to others. Duplicate yourself. The apostles delegated and duplicated. They delegated and they duplicated. The early church survived. It avoided division. Because the apostles followed these principles. They saw the problem. They knew they had to create a solution. They followed biblical principle of delegation, duplication. Everybody was in agreement. They were happy with the solution. And the solution, by the way, worked. As we read on in in Acts, these seven men went out and faithfully executed what had been given to them. They were phenomenal with the responsibility. In fact, we're not going to read it today, but I'll just give you the sneak peek. Stephen, the first one mentioned in that list, was the first 
Christian martyr. He was killed while executing his responsibility to feed the widows and the orphans and to preach the gospel of Jesus. Stoned to death. And that doesn't, I mean, not that kind of stoned to death, right? Y'all are with me on this? Like biblical stone, like stand back, Nolan Ryan, hurling rocks. Not a good way to die. Not that the other one would be either. Stoned to death for executing what was delegated to him. I pray that none of us are executed for or killed for doing what is delegated to us, but I pray that we're all ready. We're all willing to put ourselves out there for God. Who knows? I can't make you any promises. I know I've got to do what He's called me to do. And I've got to delegate and I've got to duplicate. And I pray that each of you will do the same as that delegation and duplication comes to you. We're similar to that first century church. Elevation Church. We're similar. There's problems in the church all the time. I don't know of any right now. I promise you they exist. Some of y'all are like, let me tell you. I got two or three right now. And you're one of them, Pastor Todd. I, there's problems in the church. I don't know what they are. But I know y'all are sinful and I know I'm sinful. And I know we're all different. And so I know the potential for the problem is right there. It's bubbling under the surface. If it hasn't broken through yet, it will. But that's okay. Because I think now we're all on guard. We're all aware of what it takes to avoid the division. We've got to execute faithfully. Delegation and duplication. We've got to continue to grow, to, to live out the purpose that God gave us for Elevation Church, the purpose of knowing and growing and going. We exist as a church to lead people to know Jesus personally, to grow in faith through relationships with Him and with others, and to go share the love of Christ with the world. That's our purpose. And if you joined Elevation Church a few weeks ago at our first ever membership opportunity, Foundations for Membership, if you joined, you signed up for a process of discipleship that follows that whole no, grow, go pattern. And if you're not a member and maybe you're here for the first time, you're not even sure what this whole no, grow, go thing is, hey, some of us are in the, the, the no phase. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to have a personal relationship, a faith relationship with Jesus the Son of God, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. Because the payment of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God eternally in hell. That's what we all deserve. That's what Jesus came to prevent from happening. The way that we get into that prevention program is by placing our faith in Him, that He is who He says He is, does what He says He will do, and by submitting our will to Him, following Him. Some of you need to know. You need to know Jesus. Some of you know Jesus. You know. You're either new in, in your knowledge, you're new in that relationship, or, you, or maybe you've been in it for a little while. You're in the grow phase. And the grow phase is a big phase in your Christian walk, in your Christian life. It's, it's a huge part of living this delegation, duplication life. The, the grow phase is when we get delegated to. It's when we execute faithfully the things that have been handed to us. 
begin to learn how to live out what God has wired us for, what He's placed in us. I see my role as your pastor is to get the very best of what God has put into you, out of you. That's my job. i got to get the best of what God placed in you, out of you. It happens in the grow phase. A lot of you are growing right now. You're growing in faith. You're growing in your relationship with God. You're growing in your relationship with each other. That fellowship of the believer stuff is happening. It's happening in these walls. It's happening out in the. It's happening in your home. It's happening in your place of business. It's awesome. You're growing. Some of you are fairly mature in your faith. You've grown quite a bit. God's seen fit to delegate many things. He's now delegated to you leadership. And so you're going and taking others with you in this process of knowing and growing. You're going out and sharing the love of God. You're evangelizing, sharing the gospel with other people. You're sharing the good things that God has given you with other people. Yesterday, we did a go thing when we went to Denton and served breaking bread. We fed about 140 people yesterday. And some of you guys took delegation to a whole new level. (laughs) We had a couple of guys that stood over a grill full of hot charcoal, smoking, fat spraying everywhere, burning burgers for about an hour and a half yesterday. They were going and sharing the love of Jesus with others by standing there sweating and getting burned and, and all and smelly and everything else. And we also went yesterday as we walked from table to table in that room and shared the love of Jesus with others as we prayed with people, laid hands on people, shared the goodness of God, shared the life changing, eternity-altering message of salvation by grace through faith. No, grow, go. That's what we're here for. If you're a member of the church, that's who we are. If you're not a member of the church, that's okay. You need to know that's who we are. And when you come here, you should expect that I and the leadership team... By the way, if you're on the leadership team here, we have a, we have a team of... of Volunteer leaders. These are not paid people. These are not seminarians that have gone and, and gotten Bible educations. And these are like qualified biblically, faithful men and women who are wise and who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are volunteering their time and their energy to serve as a, a board, a leadership team here in Elevation Church. If you're on the leadership team, would you would you stand up for just a moment? I don't want you guys to applaud them. This is not to give them props or recognition. I want you to know who they are so that you can go to them, ask them questions, find out things. If they don't know the answers, they're, they're fully equipped to say, I don't know, but I can find out for you. Okay? And by the way, there's two guys standing in the dark back there up in the booth. They, they're trying to hide. That's Jared and Scott. Um, they run all the sound and technology and they're far, see, delegation at work. Y'all don't want me doing that kind of stuff, I promise you, right? But this leadership team is here to serve you. They're not here to serve me. They're here to hold me accountable, to help me, to, to be delegated to, to receive that delegation, and to pass it on. They're here to be duplicated and to duplicate. You guys can have a seat. Thank you. I want you to know who they are. You go to them, ask questions, don't be afraid. You can come to me too. If they don't know the answer, they'll tell you that. They'll be honest with you, but they'll see what they can find out. Whatever you got, spiritual, 
questions? Questions about the church itself? How we're organized? Why is it always me? I don't know. Whatever you got. These are good and faithful people filled with the Spirit and they're ready to serve. By the way, when we need to feed widows and orphans, they're some of the first ones that I call. And then they in turn call you. And you in turn, I hope, call others. It's just how the delegation thing works. That's how No, Grow, Go operates. It's what the church was designed to do. It's what the church is. Elevation Church, that's who we are. That's who you as a believer in Christ are. And it's how and who we, together as His local body, His church, are. Our mission, be the church. Delegate and duplicate. Receive delegation and execute faithfully what has been delegated to you. Receive duplication and execute faithfully what is being invested in you. And then do the same with others. Delegate and duplicate. Be the church.